Hi everyone, and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Spensky. Today we are discussing Chapter 17. This is Part 1. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast, and you'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. All right. So, Pete, Chapter 17, have you, how's your week been? Oh, it's been okay. You know, we just get on as normal, don't you? You do the thing you can. We've had great weather here for this week, um, unseasonably great weather. I've been out on the new decks that I've built. Um, I've been lying there sunbathing and doing like I always do. Oh, and, nice one. and of course, now it's the weekend and it's pouring down with rain. We've got heavy winds, rain, and it's freezing cold. But that's them's the breaks. I had the good week. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, yeah, no, I dig it. I um, I think the, the sun the sun is only for the weekdays. It doesn't come out at the weekends. We know that's a statistical fact. Yes. <laughs> so, well, it, it appears that way. Yeah. Well, let's let's start with chapter seventeen. I um, oh, this chapter is all about consciousness, and there's quite a few layers into this chapter. The first one, I think, from the very first page, Aspensky starts with bold assumption: consciousness must permeate everything, yet we only equate it to animate objects. And I will I will just read you the couple of sentences: if consciousness exists in the world, then it must permeate everything. We have accustomed ourselves to ascribe animism and consciousness in this or that form to those things only which we designate as beings, i.e. to those we find analogous to ourselves in the functions which define animism in our eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I went, hang on, if consciousness exists in the world, well, we kind of, we kind of established that we think it does, why must it permeate everything? Well, here's another thing. Um... He's, he's obviously had that thought himself, because, or the translators have, because that's not what it says in my book. My later edition, they've revised, they've revised that. So, and this is interesting. Well, because, there you go. Because this makes it less of a question. I understand the question that you posed. Now, so can I tell you what he's done in yes, my Yes, please, please do. He says, instead of saying, if consciousness exists in the world, he says, if rationality exists in the world, then it must permeate everything, although manifesting itself variously. We've accustomed ourselves to ascribe animism and rationality in this or that form to things only which we designate as beings. Now, rationality, the idea of being able to analyze and make choices and, and, and make understandings based on what you perceive. Rationality is a different thing, isn't it, altogether? Now, we may be all a bit new age and we could say, without doing any philosophical um, reduction of the idea, we can all get a bit new age and say, yes, every flower, every tree, every drop of water, it's a living thing. However, do we really look at a rock and say, ooh, I wonder what it's thinking? You know, do we? Rationality is not something that we do ascribe to things other than living things and beings. I think, I think, well, I'm not saying that we do, but certainly that's, that's what he, that's what, that's what he means is that most, for most, remember, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about most people and most people, 
even mm. if they, they they might be able to ascribe rationality to a dog, uh, but they won't be able to uh, ascribe it to a rock. Most people. Yeah. Most people. No, that makes sense. So that that's what. So that's why the cha the change of word actually makes it a lot easier to cope with that first paragraph, doesn't it? Yeah, so that's very interesting that he's changed it in that because you've got the 1922 version, so it's really the version straight after this, and because uh, mine's the 1920. So yeah, yeah, and we're finding this a lot. I think I think a lot more editing seems to have gone into this second half of the book well, than it had the first half. I think that that people reading that first draft, that first pub publication, flooded in with the same sort of questions that you've just had and the same sort of stand yes. standing back in amazement at, at the boldness of the statements <laughs> that we've had all the way through the book. And I think, you know, it, was, it became so, hang on, I better change the word of this. It's like, I know what I meant, but perhaps I should use a different yeah. word. And that's and I think there's a lot of that gone on. But it, 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 it fundamentally changes the meaning for us, as, as we look at it, we don't challenge that so much as we do the word consciousness. Although, he, you know, mm. he still says, it's, it's still this idea that it must permeate everything uh, is something that we challenge. Why, why must rationality um, permeate everything? And I don't know. Um, I know as we get on to the book, he's, he, he does kind of get into inanimate objects and well, he does right here. why they he says literally after what you've just said he says inanimate objects and mechanical phenomena are to us lifeless and irrational irrational but this cannot be and so and i've got unconscious yeah and he says but this cannot be so it is only for our limited mind and our limited power of communion with other consciousnesses for our limited skill in analogy that's it now this is the where the good this is where the really good bit comes in because he's he then says uh, i'm not going to read the words but it, you know because it's quite a lengthy paragraph but he then comes down to say there are things that have rationality or consciousness at this point i i don't mind interchanging the words it said like but they have consciousness or rationality in such a way that they do not express that in the third dimension and because we are limiting ourselves to seeing things only from a th three-dimensional um, uh, point of view and perspective that we don't get to see or sense or interact in any way with the consciousness of inanimate objects for example that that are not expressing their consciousness in a three-dimensional form Boom. And that's that's the that's the money bit, isn't it? That's where yeah. that's the statement, and I think that's that's setting the tone of the whole chapter because uh, up to this point, we've always said consciousness is, is we've used analogy to our consciousness. If it you yeah. know, walks like us, talks like us, thinks like us, that's consciousness. Yeah. But that's only yeah, you're right because in this dimension, that's all we got. But that's not the. He actually says here, there is. we recognise as animated. Only those beings which have psychic life accessible to our observation in the three-dimensional sections of the world. In other words, beings whose psyche is analogous to ours. Like I say, dogs, mm. cats, anything that we... Even things that we say don't rationalise but live on instinct. We know that we do things instinctively too, you know, and, and so they are analogous to us. And so we can only, we can only ascribe... Um, a psych, psychic behaviour to those beings. 
and I'm, I'll keep coming up and saying cats and dogs and things, but we know all of the animal kingdom, etc., 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 insects, a lot. But, um, you know, he's saying that we'll only ascribe consciousness, rationality, psychic activity to those beings where we can actually see that happening. Yeah, and, and the rest of them we're saying are dead or unconscious. Yeah. Now, we know that there's been a lot of scientific work much as I believe in that or care about it, but there's been a lot of scientific work um, recently, certainly not in Espensky's time, showing that um, plants and trees, for example, have this mode of communication. The BBC, a couple of years back, had this incredible documentary. Is uh, I can't remember the name. I think it was called The Life of Trees or something. But it showed that trees were actually able to communicate in a forest through their root system. I won't go into the detail. I don't remember the detail, but these scientists proved that it happened. I mean, it was amazing to watch. There are lots of things that have been done with speaking to plants and watching them grow and flourish if you say certain words. And then there's the work that Emoto did on water, where you see water mm. crystals under a, yeah. mi a microscope. And, you know, when you're nice to them, they perform these fantastic snowflake-like incredible patterns. And then if you're horrible to them, it's harsh and jagged. And so on. Uh, you know, this sort of work has gone on since Uspensky, but still, most people wouldn't uh, wouldn't ascribe that rationality even to plants. Most people think that it's nuts when you talk when people mention, oh, you know, be, speak nicely to the plants in you know in your garden and they'll flourish. Most yeah. people, most people don't do that, but they will understand because we have pets and we see animals. They will understand that a dog has. Um, a, a psychic life, if you if you want to call it psychic, um, but it has rationality. You know, a, a dog can make decisions and does. Yeah. So mm. and so do cats and so on. So we, you know, the, this is interesting. You know, he, I think he's yeah, doing exactly right. so. So so that's a great segue because uh, if we turn the page, I think that the next couple of pages start talking about nature, and from what I can see. He, the the point Spensky's making, and we'll go into this in a little further detail, is that nature is the manifestations of emotions and thoughts of forms of consciousnesses known only to us um, as phenomena in the 3D. So they're outside of our 3D plane, and we just see it's their emotions and thoughts sort of intersecting with our plane, is I think what he's saying. Yeah, and he does, and I, I think he's spot on. I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I could see that you were about to say something else, but uh, yeah, that's exactly what he's saying, and we do do that, don't we? We notice that when we plant, I don't know, a shrub or whatever we plant, and we take care of it in a certain way, we watch and we observe it growing and flourishing, but we don't ascribe anything to that uh, other than some kind of mechanical behavior some scientific behavior um, based on nutrition and the plant needs this, that, and the other. We don't say to the plant, oh, this plant is happy, watch it flourish. We don't ascribe to it the same feelings that we would have if we, if we were given a puppy dog and we watch that puppy grow and, and mature and, be, and have a personality because they do. And, you know, we, we don't ascribe that to the plant. But for all we know, the plant might be saying, whoa, I love this place that you've put me in. And this is exactly what I was doing. I'm, I, I set my intention to be planted in just such a place. And you are the kindest gardeners that could possibly be. How fantastic. Oh, by the way, 
my friend over there, that other plant, you know, we, we communicate telepathically. <laughs> my other plant wants to thank you as well. You know, we don't, we never think that that's going on, do we? We just don't. But it could well be. <laughs> you know, I will say yes, but when I go out into my garden and, and I put plants in, I kind of feel their happiness. <laughs> I'm a bit of a weirdo. <laughs> rather like Uspensky, we should be talking in terms of the general mass of people rather than our own Correct, personal. Yes. Because Uspensky doesn't believe that either. Uspensky obviously believes that everything has this consciousness. He's talking about yes. how, the, how the general world is programmed to believe these things without any proof and without doing any research or investigation at all. They take it for granted that... A plant doesn't have feelings, thoughts, or, or any form of other psychic communication or psychic activity that it can't manifest a world around it or whatever. You know, the, the process of growing, you know, from a tree, let's say an oak tree. An oak tree, it takes some growing, by the way. And I always wonder, what the heck is the behavior of an acorn that drops from an oak tree Onto the forest floor where there may be debris and everything. You know, it doesn't get nicely buried. You know, the, the, the oak tree doesn't sort of like pull out a branch with a trowel and dig a nice little <laughs> hole for it. It's, it. it's literally left to fall on the floor in some kind of fucking hope that, that a root will sort of come out of the acorn and say, hang on, I better sort of embed myself in the, in the ground here and in the dirt a bit. I mean, how does that even happen? Yeah, and a bit further away from the tree because yeah. it's already taken up some space under yeah, the ground. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, you know, I, it's hard to understand how, how that happens, but it does. You know, I can understand tiny little seedlings. For example, a bird eats a, a tiny little bit of fruit or something from a, from a tree or a shrub and does a poo somewhere a million miles away and then the, the seeds are so small that, yes, they will go into the crevices between soil and dirt and so on, maybe, and before you know it, they're green. This is why we have a proliferation of wild strawberries and raspberries in my garden, which we do. Um, we, we don't plant them. We, we, there are a few there, and suddenly they're everywhere, which is you know, no bad thing, but uh, you get my point. They, they just spread. Um, we don't know how. I don't know how. And I'm sure some smart-ass scientist would tell me how and why, but I, don't, I think the scientist misses the point. What is it about the consciousness and, and the choice of a plant to say, I'm going to reproduce in this way. This is fun. I'm going to make a million of me. I mean, what, what, we do not know. <laughs> Mini-me's. Yeah, we, we have no way of knowing whether or not that's a choice. The scientist, the rational scientist would probably look at it and say, oh, it's just, it's just a mechanical, biological process. Totally ignoring the um, philosophical argument behind um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein novel, but that's another, another story. But the fact of it is that, that, that that's what st science would do with this process, whereas what Uspensky is suggesting is that maybe beyond this third-dimensional section of existence, Maybe there is all kinds of fun psychic activity going on with these beings that then project themselves here as plants and say, "Woohoo! Look at me! Look at me!" I, we have no, I, we have no idea. No, no, and even even the impetus to plant, like my garden was full of grass because mm. of things that had happened. And and one morning I looked out and I went, "I can't have this anymore." I got in and got it going. Well, who knows? Maybe that was nature somehow beaming a. A thought to me, get your garden sorted. 
what you know, there's things to be grown here. What if, what if <laughs> on, on other planes of consciousness, we didn't have this hierarchical idea that man is the supreme being and everything else is there for man's purpose? What if the things that manifest as plant life on this planet and us that manifest as humans are something completely different in the fourth, fifth or any other dimension and we all get together and say, hey guys, let's have a party down there. We'll, we'll manifest in this form and you'll manifest in this form. It'll all be so symbiotic and everything and we'll have a fantastic time. And then something goes wobbly wrong and we turn into the kind of monsters that destroy what they're doing. And you don't know that when we die, we don't go, and the plants die, we don't go back to this fourth, fifth, sixth dimension or whatever. And the plant consciousness could turn and say, well, you turned out to be an arsehole, didn't you? <laughs> you know, we, don't, we have no idea. You, you wrecked the party. We don't know. I mean, look, I'm, I'm being flippant uh, and, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure it's not like that. But we have no way of knowing because we don't even give any. We usually, and this is Ospensky's point of this entire book, we don't even give any thought to that usually. But That's we should. And now, now you've mentioned that, I, I'm a bit afraid of having to face my poor rosemary bush, which I watered to death. <laughs> realize that, uh, that it doesn't like water they do flourish in mediterranean climates i mean they they like the dry dry heat you and you'd have thought and you'd have thought australia would have been perfect for it it was perfect and it was it was flourishing when i paid it no attention and then i transplanted it and <laughs> i thought oh i'll give i better give you plenty of water and nurture you and i killed it with kindness and it's probably looking at me you know from from the other dimension going well that didn't work out so well after all did it <laughs> silly woman <laughs> what would Spensky call me a simple woman <laughs> yes that's right <laughs> I wasn't crafty at all. No. But uh, <laughs> so, so I'll just uh, I'll just read you a quote from Dostoevsky on that yeah, on. that very point. He said, sure. um, he said, in all these thoughts and emotions, the the forms peculiar to itself alone of some great consciousness or better, all of this is the expression of the emotions, thoughts, and forms of consciousness of mysterious being, nature. There can be nothing dead or mechanical in nature. If in general life and consciousness exist, they must exist in all. Life and consciousness make up the world. Now, you've probably got a different word there than consciousness. You're quite right. So I get there can be nothing dead or mechanical in nature. If in general life and feeling exist, they must exist in all. Life and rationality make up the world. So is he saying that life and rationality are two separate things or dependent on each other? No, he's saying that anything, everything is living and that everything is rational in its own way, not necessarily mm. in the third dimension. And that's when he further goes on to say, if we consider nature from our side, from the side of phenomena, mm -hmm. then it is necessary to say that each thing, each phenomena possesses consciousness, which is probably rationality in your book. No, it says psyche. <laughs> psyche? Damn it. Can I not guess it right? No. <laughs> so when he says, if we consider nature from our side, I'm presuming he's saying, if we just consider nature in, as a third dimensional section... Mm -hmm. then we're only seeing the phenomena of it. That's right. That's exactly it. Yep, yep. And then he's further saying that, well, you know, we must think a bit further than that and say that each of this phenomena is part of a consciousness. It, it, it possesses consciousness. It doesn't say it is consciousness, but it possesses it. So it's part, uh, it's, it has some, some form of consciousness or perhaps is part of some form of consciousness. Well, we can, we can actually uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that what you've just said is exactly what he means. And he will have other things that he can bring to this party when he's saying that. So, for example, um, we well understand in these days that um, native cultures, let's take Native American, North Americans, natives, um, South American, not so much um, Australian natives because it's another story, but their culture has not been assimilated into the West as part of the New Age. But most people will have heard the idea that North American Plains Indians, well, all of them actually, would say that there is living spirit in all things, in a stream, in, a, in the plains, in, in the animals and so on, and, and the air and, and the wind and so on. Something that we in the West had up until 2,000 years ago anyway. Well, actually, less than 2,000 years ago we had it. And it still continued in rural communities, particularly up until now. And, and now it's growing again. But this idea that everything had its spirit and that you could communicate with the spirit is an old-fashioned thing. Uspensky writes from the point of view of... For example, a scientist, doesn't he? We've, we've, we've been through this. Mm. So he's coming at it from the, the rational age that he lives in, and he's writing for this rational audience. Without a shadow of a doubt, he's writing for, for what we would call a rational audience. However, Uspensky, at this point, has had access to Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff spent his entire life having meetings with remarkable men. In other words, with tribal cultures from the Himalayas and the Mongols and so, and, and so on. So shamanic cultures and so on. Gurdjieff had access to all of this and, and obviously Spencer became what I can only describe as a disciple of Gurdjieff. Um, mm. That's, that's yeah, what I take absolutely. on it. And, and so he will have had all of this idea. Until he wasn't. Well, until he wasn't, yes. But uh, that, uh, there was a point <laughs> at which he was. So... Um, yes. <laughs> but what he will have had access to is the things that Gurdjieff, in his meetings with remarkable men, as uh, as it's mentioned, um, he will have had these ideas of, of not only can we understand that all things have this idea of a psychic life, but that we can, should we tra choose to train ourselves, commune with that spirit. In other words, the things that native cultures have said that they should and could and do do, all the time. Yes, yeah. I mean, even in e even at the height of Christianity, medieval Christianity in Europe, we had this flowering outburst of um, literature, the the Arthurian and the Grail canon. Um, obviously, people like Thomas Mallory were writing this, Chrétien de Troy, um, Wolfram von Eschenbach, um, writing these things about this. And always, we are bringing in into what for them was a modern world and a modern um, organization of society but this idea of living spirits you would have the damsel of the well and the damsel of the stream and so on all of these nature spirits represented in earthly form in the in the language of the court and the language of the troubadour but it was continuing this i guess what we would then and they would then call pagan belief set it was it was carrying those pagan uh, understandings of the natural world into the 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 world of christianity which would normally um have you burnt at the stake for heresy for just mentioning it 
but they cleverly brought it in in such a way that that understanding carried through. Now, isn't it interesting that the stuff that um, Uspensky is giving us here, we already had, and it had actually been battered to death by, um, I don't know, what would we call Christianity in the Middle Ages? A controlling cult? Political cult? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And yet these things survived in those writings and the songs of the troubadours and so on. And that, that is interesting in itself because they put a lot of effort into getting rid of all of the literature and, you know, book burnings and witch burnings and, you know, trying to obliterate any understanding of that connection. Like it was almost like we're here, we're in charge, the rest of it is non-existent. And even to the point where they, they, where they represent Pan, doesn't he look like the devil? Like, the, you know, like they've, they've depicted Pan with the horns well, and, the, you know, sort of... Well, hang on. Um, it's the other way around. Pan was always depicted like that. What they chose to do was depict the devil like Pan, not Pan like the devil. Ah, right. Yeah, well, there's, there's my lack of... But that, that makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> mm, yeah. What they've done is they demonised nature... And they've 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 squashed nature and demonized it. So any worship of the stream or and the spirits of nature, any call to the spirit of nature, uh, instead of calling to Christ and God and the cult, the political cult of control, um, is going to be frowned upon. And that's what they've done. See all this stuff that Uspensky is telling us in this book. You didn't need to tell even even uneducated people who couldn't read you didn't need to tell them 2000 years ago they lived it that's what they knew to be the truth and they did live it and they did commune with it with the seasons with the weather they were acutely aware of the these movements and passages and they the, their stories their oral stories that came down through generation to generation explained how these great forces of nature thought and acted and, and what we do to, to live in harmony with them so that they live in harmony to us and with us and we'd flourish and so on. And these had to be hidden in books. Now, who's going to read those books? Who, who, read, who read Thomas Mallory's um, Le Mort d'Arteur? Who read that? Um, well, who could get their hands on the well, book? Let's, let's start with that. Well, that's my point. Um, this wasn't, everybody can get it now, but virtually nobody reads it because the language is too difficult for most people. I mean, seriously, it, it just, it's simple enough. It's simple enough English, but most people can't read beyond Harry Potter. And so uh, that, that's where we are. But in the days when uh, Thomas Mallory, Cretti and Detroit were, were writing... This was going to an elite group of people, very much so. Very much people who didn't have to fear um, cries of heresy just for owning a book like this. It was transmitting the old um, knowledge in such a way that they could benefit from it, but everybody else had to be locked down. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to understand that books weren't for everybody, and you don't have to be a particularly fantastic anthropologist to work out that behind the stories within, for example, Thomas Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur, are exact representations of the forces that you find in the extant pagan stories that have come down to us, the Celtic mythology that you find in the Mabinogion, for example, and other stories that, that were collected by the Brothers Grimm, by um, Hans Christian Andersen, from Aesop's Fables. All of these things uh, are, are there, carried in, 
in a condensed and acceptable form, legally acceptable form, uh, to an elite people. Um, ordinary people were being told, no, you're going to work six days a week and then you're coming to church where we will continue to program you and tell you that you're a sinner and that you're going to hell. Um, they were not getting Thomas Mallory. Nobody came to the village longhouse anymore because there wasn't a village longhouse anymore. There was no travelling troubadour. There was no travelling bard who would come and tell you the stories over the fire in the great hall so that every generation would have all of this as part of their cultural um, inheritance. Uh, that didn't happen in the time in the Middle Ages when... Mallory was writing and Chrétien de Troyes was writing and Wolfram van Eschenbach was writing. That did not happen. So it was very much for an elite of people. And anyone who did would be a heretic. So, you know, good luck with that if you thought you might just uh, start a trend again. <laughs> well, there's, no, evid there's yeah. no evidence of anybody doing it. The only people that were doing um, any kind of travelling from court to court were the troubadours. And again, they were only singing and, and speaking to the elite. The troubadours didn't go yeah. to the local village and sit in cow filth talking, you know, singing songs on their lutes and things to village people that wouldn't understand a word of what they were saying anyway. They didn't. They, they, went, they went to castles and palaces to transmit this law. Yeah. Anyway, back, back to chapter 17. Anyway, back to, <laughs> back to Uspensky. So I just want to read you this, this it's a sentence um, because I believe what he's saying is what manifests to us like a mountain or a fish or anything in nature is an intersection in our space, in the 3D space, of a function of a consciousness in another section of space. So this is what we, we've already sort of mentioned, but here's what Spensky says. If we consider nature from the other side, from the side of noumena, then it is necessary to say that each thing and each phenomena in our world is a manifestation in our section of some consciousness, incomprehensible to us, belonging to another section, that consciousness, that consciousness having there functions incomprehensible to us. Now, you've probably got other words than consciousness in your book. Rationality. Rationality. But the interesting thing that I got from this was he's talking about functions. And we've talked about this earlier in the book where, you know, the function of something in a different dimension isn't necessarily what we see as the function. We only see an intersection here. Uh, just bringing back one of his examples of, um, you know, the two-dimensional being seeing the hand on the on the plane, seeing five circles, having no idea of the function of a man. Um, so, I, I, well, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this because I, I think that's a very interesting point that, you know, we're just seeing what happens to be crossing our paths as opposed to what yeah. really is happening. And I also feel that a, a real problem arises when we use this idea of separation. Why are we seeing anything? What we should be doing is playing our own interactive part in this great dance mm. of nature. We shouldn't just be thinking of ourselves as something bigger and better, observing it and wondering, whoa, what's the rest of that section like? Because that takes us nowhere. Like, mm. what part are we? We're here. We're projecting ourselves in this section. What the heck are we beyond this set? Beyond. Of course. So, so our, when I said when I only like sort of frivolously suggested that in other dimensions, fourth, fifth, sixth, wherever the heck it is, why were we not all 
in some kind of agreement of how we were going to interact together and there's this incredible connected flow of experience that that appears in in this third dimension one section can be a, a, a an oak tree and another section can be a human being another one a fish another a mountain and they all come together and and how come how come uh, we don't accept that some consciousness that we don't perceive of as a rational consciousness in this dimension is because it is so rarefied that in this dimension we're not we can't see it because we wouldn't be able to play our part in this section for example a mountain wouldn't you look at a mountain and say if you understood that it had rational consciousness of its own wouldn't you look at a mountain and say wow you must be amazingly powerful and guess mm, what and guess would. and guess what people that live at the base of mountains always have done mountains are big you feel gods. it don't you big gods and you do even a rational person i i i challenge you to go to the alps or the himalayas or the andes and stand close and look up and and not and not feel something i challenge anybody you you, you know there's something incredibly awesome that brings us to what Aspensky is saying next it's a great segue pete because he's he's it wasn't, it wasn't accidental <laughs> <laughs> yes you, you might have read the book um <laughs> because what Aspensky then goes on to say is that what we see the differences in things we see on in our section of the world which is let's just call that the three three dimension and we know 3D, that's what yeah. i mean from now on three yeah is the differences between, say, a mountain and us are just as different, like the the the, um, the amount of difference is the same in the numinal world. So if there's a huge difference between us and a mountain on the third dimension, it means on the numinal world there's a huge amount of difference between our consciousness and the mountain consciousness in, in well, he's sort of saying sort of the same sort of proportions, but uh, I shall read you that if you care to hear it the phenomena of our world are very different from one another if there is nothing else but manifestations in our section of different consciousnesses then these consciousnesses must be very different too between yeah. the consciousness of a mountain and the consciousness of a man there must be the same difference as between a mountain and a man and i agree uh, you know because um, i've i've used an analogy ever since we started doing this about we i think you know I'm, look, I'm looking at what Ospensky is saying, and yes, we are all this rational consciousness, and we're all connected, and, and, you know, in another dimension somewhere. We are all connected, but it's how we project our form of consciousness and rationality into this three-dimensional world. Which, which section uh, do, can we project into it? Now, look at us. If you were looking from a different perspective, and you looked down on the Earth, and you would see each human life as an infinitesimally small blink of light. But you would observe while the lights are flashing and going out as we are born, live and die, all represented by one flicker of light. Mountains growing and growing and being there and staying there and doing nothing. Uh, you know, and so the mountains existence. So you see... What native cultures will always say is that the mountains and, and the boulders and the rocks are wise. They've seen everything. We come and go in the blink of an eye. 
but they have an understanding of everything that's happened in well since time began mm. and we see see no activity because we're here and gone before that activity even moves and, and that that's by the way if you believe in the other ridiculous 19th century early 19th century theory of, of stasis in other words Geology is the same now as it always has been. Things have never happened quicker than they do now. Mountains have never, never just suddenly appeared and gone. Although, you know, we have earthquakes and, and islands form out of the, the sea. But, you know, they'll say, yeah, but that's only in volcanoes. There, there is this ludicrous and quite easy to disprove theory of, of, of stasis and the, of the, the idea that things are now what they've always been. In other words, planets don't shift in their orbits either. You should read Velikovsky. But, um, you know, we have, mm, we have that I ludicrous should, idea. I think you should. Um, I, it's come up a lot of times through Uspensky, hasn't it, yeah. Velikovsky's mm. references? Yeah. It does. But nevertheless, um, coming back to where we are now on Chapter 17, it's worth mentioning that um, this is a great idea that the, there is, while we're all part, we're all connected which we are going to come to, but, you know, and, and this is this is where we're going. While we all may be connected, that we are different in scale and operation. Even, even modern religions have this idea of hierarchical gods, don't they? They do. Even, even the Christian one does. Even the Christian, well, even, even pantheistic, uh, well, not pantheistic, but even um, religions that have multiple gods. Roman, Greek, whatever. There is a hierarchy. There really is a hierarchy. For example, Zeus in Greece, um, the thunderer, uh, by, by the way, again, understand why Zeus is the thunderer. Read Velikovsky. Uh, <laughs> it keeps coming up. You're right. Uh, usually by me. Um, but uh, <laughs> Always by you. <laughs> I know. Because I haven't read him. <laughs> well, there you go. But there you go. But but there are but there are hierarchies of gods, and then there are the demigods, and so on. There are, these hierarchies exist, and why? Rather than having people who have to be obedient, why not have things that have a function that that seems to be impossible to other other aspects of consciousness? For example, a mountain's function is to preside over a massive area and see everything. I'm 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 being a, a little fairy story about it here and giving it I'm anthropomorphizing the mountain. Whereas our our job is just to be little children and play. It's it's re it, they there could be other functions. Now if you look down at um systems of magic as well as religion, or all religious magic, and I mean Christianity as well as everything else, so Kabbalistic magic which is Judaic, um but but you have hierarchies of angelic forces also in Christianity. So we have the six archangels and they all have different functions. And then below them, we have other forms of angels and sephirah and so on and cherubim and, and all of these things that have been trivialized by medieval Renaissance art. Uh, I mean, Renaissance art rather than medieval art um, as, as little baby type things. But these hierarchies are hierarchies of creation. Now, you can look at this hierarchy of creation whereby you do start off at the top of the pyramid with the one creative source, which I will happily call God. And God says, I want to do something. 
I mean, I'm, I'm trivializing God here, but you know, God, God, God has this spark of an idea and says, you know what? I'm bored. I'm bored. I'm bored. Let's, let's make something happen. Um, I'm going to create these things here and I'm going to give them the attributes that, that, ha that mean that they have this irresistible impulse to create something of their own. So God creates the six archangels and then the archangels with different attributes and qualities themselves and they're all connected and joined, they suddenly find themselves doing their job. And below them comes an even wider layer and then there's a, a division of, of angelic uh, forces subdivided and each one of these angels has its own creative force and then we get down to the third dimension blah 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 and what we have is this hierarchical pyramid this is described all the time all the time whether you're looking at greek gods where there is some rationality about the greek gods especially if you read velikovsky and some of the some of the other ancient god um, pantheons but um overall nature pantheons are not like that and there is this idea that when you look at the mountain, the mountain is much more powerful than I. Look, it it makes a whole lot of sense to me. Mm. And Spensky further goes on yeah, to say that I, we I, think I, yeah. sorry. that... Yeah, sorry, you, you, well, the part I'm looking at is starts the activity of life. Of That's exactly years. where That's I was just heading. going to come in. That's exactly <laughs> where I was <laughs> just going to come in. <laughs> so let me, let me just read that. The activity of life of separate units may vary greatly. The degree of the activity of life can be determined from the standpoint of its power of reproducing itself. Well, he says in inorganic mineral nature, this activity is so insignificant that units of this nature accessible to our observation do not reproduce themselves. Although it may only seem that way to us because of the narrowness of our view in time and space. I mean, I've put big ticks by that because, yes, we look at a mountain and say that it's not reprodu reproducing itself. How do we know? Well, because we're we're here and gone before yes, before he has a chance to even think about it. Let's say what we um, ridiculously consider to be the beginning of observational civilization in the human race. Let's let's say we go back ten, fifteen thousand years, twenty thousand years. Let's say after the last alleged ice age. I say alleged for my own reasons. Um, well, let's say we go back twenty thousand years. If we took all of the observation, if one person could have been alive 20,000 years ago and was still alive today and had sat looking at a mountain, it would be saying, I've wasted my life because nothing's happened. We can't observe this stuff. We are in no position to observe it. And here's the interesting thing, too, because we have time, which we know is not real. It's only a perception of our consciousness. So what we think might be taking millions and billions of years and the noumenal world might be Blink happening and I. quite differently. Well, because, yeah. because we will come to the point where we understand that, and we have already touched upon it with Uspensky, and he's, he's mentioned it, that time is an illusion that allows us to make sense of third dimensional phenomena. It's unnecessary other mm. than that. Other than for that, it, does, it doesn't need to exist. And most philosophers who investigate this will tell you that once you go beyond this realm of consciousness it doesn't exist people who've had near-death experiences come back and tell you the same thing well documented yeah. it's because of our lack of being able to grasp infinity yeah. that everything is all at once mm. even its own opposite except totally which we've agree. gone through and that's 
Now, here's the next bit to continue on with this concept of being able to reproduce itself. Mm. Um, I'm going to go a little bit further ahead. We talk about yeah, the snail. Um, yes. Again. The snail has a consciousness of form, i.e. the form of a snail is consciousness of itself, as it were. The form of a stone is not conscious of itself. And then he further goes on to say that if we cut a snail in half, we wouldn't have two snails. But if we cut a stone in half, we could have two stones. But that is not, even though we're saying consciousness has an awareness of itself, it doesn't mean that the stone does not have awareness of itself in another plane. I should I should just um, chime in here and say that Uspensky isn't saying... Mm, please uh, do. That, he is not saying that the stone is of a lower form of consciousness than a snail, etc., etc., and, and words like primitive. He's actually, he's actually saying it for what the general feeling is, not what he mm. believes or what actually is the truth of it. I think we should make sure here that he's, he's not saying that that's the case. He's saying... Oh, true, most, true, he, yes. He, he does say, and in my version, he's got this in italics, for us... Phenomena are divided into living and mechanical, and visible objects are divided into organic and inorganic. Now, what True. he means is that that's the general belief. He doesn't mean that it actually is the case. So, I think we should. I think I think we should actually come leap to his defence here and say that we. He's just describing what the the actual general mass of the public has been led to believe, and what science leads them to believe, but. <laughs> and, but then when we come to the description, he is true. He is absolutely right. Um, yeah, we will we, we will say that we have two stones if we break a rock into two. We certainly wouldn't consider that we had two snails. <laughs> no, we wouldn't. We would not. And, and, and yet and... if you had two earthworms, if you had an earthworm and cut it in off, you would have two earthworms. Do you not know that? All right, now... Yes, I didn't know that. <laughs> okay. I don't well, know a lot if of you, things, do Well, I if, you, if, you take, if you take an earthworm and you cut, cut it in half, as a cruel child, mentioning no names myself and my friends, is if you did this, you actually end up with two living worms and they'll each start to grow and become two earthworms. Isn't that fascinating? That's fascinating. Well, let's see where that leads us with what Ospensky is saying. And I'm going to paraphrase this to start with and then, you know, I can okay. read it a bit where it's talking about it. But what Ospensky is saying is that that's how we see, you know, we see life. We see something that, you know, is divisible as something that's not conscious and something that isn't divisible as a conscious form. But he is saying that in another dimension outside of this intersection with the third dimension, if something is not divisible in our section of the world, then in dimensions higher up, it is also an individual consciousness. It's, in, it's not divisible there, it's individual. However, if it is divisible on our section of the world or plane, then it's a collection of, a collection of individual consciousnesses on another plane. So it's more a group. So in other words, when you divide the stone on another plane, that's a group of consciousnesses. So you're kind of just splitting the crowd. But if you divide a snail, it's an individual consciousness. So you're actually, yeah. You know, and I, and I see the point of that, and I really do. But here's, the, here's my issue. 
we're, we're stuck with the old problem of language be, and, and with three-dimensional um, perspectives because on these other planes it's unlikely that there is that idea of separation. We, we've, we've got to be, we, we have to be very careful. Is it like the Russian doll? Like it's one doll, but you know, it's open up and there's another doll and another doll and another doll. They're all kind of the one doll, but... And, but if, you pull, all... and if you take the other dolls out, i.e. breaking the stone, you would look at that as, oh, there's actually 10 dolls. And that's, that's the mistake yeah. I'm saying making. You wouldn't say that, that that little doll there is part of the big doll that it came out of. Right now, I could take that doll, give it to a, a child and say, there, go and play with that. And the child would be oblivious to the idea that there was ever a bigger doll than it came out of. In other words, it has totally separate existence. I'm saying that that's, that doesn't happen. And I don't think that Spensky means it to happen. He's going to say that, that if we thought of it at all, from our rational perspective and 3D perspective, maybe this is how we'd see it. But we, but it's not necessarily the case. There is this huge mass of energy, you know, aware. I rather, I have, a, I'd much rather have awareness than consciousness as a word. But, uh, but there is this huge mass, and it has different ideas. Like the, uh, we've just touched on the idea of a. The, the awareness and the consciousness of a mountain will be, on that plane, probably as vastly different um, as, as it is on this plane to us. But we're all part of the same thing. This is why we're all part of nature. This is why every ancient culture has understood it, because it's communicated with it and understood, and understood it very, very well. Um, if we split a rock, does that then have two separate ideas of awareness well yes it might but st but but um but still within the same one continuum of aware energy well i think aspensky kind of gets the same concept where he's saying that uh consciousnesses are components of bigger so, yeah. groups of consciousnesses and so on. So I still, I still don't like this idea of plural. It's the one consciousness. Yeah, this idea of plural. No, I'm just, I'm just trying to say that you know, it's once we start looking uh, in the perspective of 3D world, we get lost in it, and then we talk, start talking about things on other planes of existence being exactly like they are here, with separation and everything's different, and we and, the, and that these blobs of consciousness on the fifth dimension or the sixth will look at each other as though they're separate, unlikely, mm. especially since uh, there will be no time there for them to actually have any difference of. No, well, that's true. I think potentially Spensky nails it, well, potentially, when he talks about the function as opposed to the consciousness. Yes, I, I like it's the idea of that. Because the one so, consciousness. So an ocean consists of all water. But for example, the Humboldt Current, part of the part of all the oceans of the world, which are all connected and they're all one thing, but that Humboldt Current running down the western side of North America and so on, um, its function is to move that cold water down that down that hot um, piece of land. You get lost in the, you know, so that's what the one it, consciousness. Yeah, it's the one. Yeah, it's the you one one ocean, but there are different functions within it. Nobody would argue that a drop of water from the Humboldt current is different to a drop of water from any other ocean in the world. They're all connected. And who knows, the, water, the, the warm water in the South Pacific or the Indian Ocean could well, through the currents of movement, find itself 
that that particular molecule could find itself in the Humboldt current. So what's happening there? There's something on a level beyond the 3D molecular level that, that connects the Humboldt current with the, the hot, balmy water of the South Pacific and so on and so on and so on. Mm. And, and Spensky's talked about this before. We talked about the, the wood making a mast and making a cross and making a hangman's mm. whatever. Yeah. It's the same wood, but the function changes. The difference with that, that analogy is that you will automatically see separate objects. The ocean analogy, and I, True. I yeah. give myself a pat on the back with that, is, is far better. Very good analogy, Pete. It is a very good. good analogy indeed. It is. Because you, you have to see the connection. The water is connected all around the globe. It mm. is the same damn water, but there are different functions with it. There are different areas of pressure. There are different areas of temperature. There are different areas of motion. And we also have the Gulf Stream that comes from, you know, Caribbean up to the North Atlantic and it goes west to east and it hits us in the British Isles, which is why, despite our latitude, we do not have the harsh climate that other countries on the same latitude in, in Europe have. For example, the same latitude as Germany, as areas of Eastern Europe, they have the most horrific winters compared to us. We just get rain. You know, we have what's known as a temperate climate because of the Gulf Stream. Now, is that by design? I don't know. What's happening on other levels where where the, the consciousness that says, I'm going to be the, the water on that planet and I'm going to make it so that everything exists, all the rest of you, you will, you will be able to, to experience your function in the way that you are going to because I'll do this and you'll do that for me and you'll, you'll create, uh, you know, who knows? But you can't deny the, the idea that the ocean is one mass of water with different things going on within it. Yes, and different things obviously under some, some other direction because what makes that water decide to be a current? What makes that water yeah, decide to be somewhere else absolutely. other than the current? You know, it, it has to be a consciousness somewhere directing the, 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 the function mm. of that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read this bit. I'm still want to talk about this bit about divisible and non-divisible. With that in mind, with your concept in mind, to see if I can explain it. Well, one of us can explain it with that concept. So Spensky says, if a given phenomenon on our plane is a manifestation of that which on another plane is conscious, then on our side, evidently, indivisibility corresponds to individuality of consciousness on the other side, but divisibility. Yeah on our side shows divisibility on that side. The consciousness of a visible can be a collective non-individual consciousness only. So we recognize consciousness in the whole organism only. So that was kind of what I was saying before. It's like if it was divisible, then it's a collection of non-individual consciousnesses on another plane. So if, if we were looking at, I, I don't know how to bring your ocean analogy into the rock and snail. I can take a bucket of water out of the Humboldt current, out of that piece of ocean that's moving fast down the west coast of North America. I can go out there in a boat, I can drop a bucket in and take it away. Okay? Is it still part of uh -huh. the ocean? Is, does it, is it still the same ocean water once it's in the bucket? It is. There you go. So now I've taken that bucket of water away 
and I've I've taken the trouble to fly it across the world and drop it into the Mediterranean where it immediately becomes warm and static it's you know it never stops being part of that ocean I see so if you took a bucket of water out of the Humboldt current you don't get two Humboldt currents because the function of the Humboldt current is just that that's it is what it is on another level being that current however that bucket of water can be another water uh, in the Atlantic or the Mediterranean Ocean and it's still part of that ocean because as an individual bucket of water it's its function is to be water which can go can be split can be poured into two different oceans etc understand what you're saying now Pete thanks yeah the ocean is a much bigger picture than the individual projection of function. Function is the choice of the ocean. The ocean says, we're going to have a Humboldt current. I'm going to, I'm going to run part of me, I'm going to run a Humboldt current down there. Because that's what we decided on. And this bit's going to be pretty static. This is, this is going to be the rest home for that aspect of consciousness when it's had enough of being the Humboldt current. It's going to find itself in the South Pacific where it's lovely and warm and, and it can sunbathe and, and regenerate and so on. This is all that's happening. Mm. So the individual consciousness on the other on the other plane is Humboldt current, but if you take water and just bucket it out of anywhere, it's just water. Yeah, well I actually think I actually think that I think that this consciousness is a projection from the ocean. The ocean is saying if the ocean was still completely static never changing, nothing nothing changes about it, and then suddenly has this idea, do you know what, uh, wouldn't it be great if I moved this cold current, if I, if, if I started moving down there, what then if this bit became warm? So you've got the ocean itself as the, the big consciousness that says this is what's going to uh-huh. happen. So these parts of it, they have their own thing to do. The part that's been told that it's the Humboldt current says, I better start moving down here now. I'm going to start moving down here. I'm going to move from north to south. I'm, I'm going to, and I'm going to be cold. Um, I'll manage that by using some, some kind of depth of the ocean floor and so on, whatever, whatever method it uses. When it comes out of being the, the Humboldt current, because remember, it doesn't just stop, otherwise um, the southern half of the earth would just be all water, wouldn't it? It, it does move. Mm-hmm. There is a circular mov- movement of it. It no longer has the the functionality and the consciousness of the Humboldt Current once it's moved out of the Humboldt Current and it's moving up the Pacific Ocean um, into the hot zones. Its functionality has changed. Okay, Pete. Well, look, I'm going to leave it there for part one. And uh, we'll continue this next week for part two. Thanks so much for for having this conversation again with me this week. I've I've enjoyed. Yeah, me too. It's been really, really interesting. I, I happen to know what comes on, along in the second half of this chapter. And it's great that we're actually not going to try to hurry through it and that we're going to do it next week. It's very, very interesting. And it, it actually expands upon what we've just said about the will being the impetus behind desire and and our our true purpose it it's interesting how he talks about and gives analogies on how this works and how we can i actually think he gives us a, a blueprint on how we can develop the skill of paying attention to that will and our intuition yeah now there's some great stuff coming so uh so thanks again and thanks everyone for listening